Welcome back to Notice That, an EMDR podcast where two licensed professional counselors and approved EMDR consultants discuss the latest research and resources for trauma treatment and EMDR therapy. today to do part two of a series that we started last time about polyvagal theory and EMDR. And Jen and I are here with Bridger Falkenstein. And Bridger, we're glad you're back with us to keep talking about this fascinating topic. Yes, very, very glad to be back. I'm glad we're doing a multi-part <laughs> podcast on it. it. It's better than trying to cram everything into one hour, that's for sure. Yeah, that's just inappropriate, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> So before we get going, you guys, we want to uh, remind everybody to take a minute and go to our Patreon page and check out what we have to offer you there. It's patreon.com slash beyondhealingcenter. And we have four different tiers that you can choose um, with lots of different fun goodies and options, uh, things like stickers and a lot of scripts that we've written for protocols, um, other programs that we're offering, and most of all, bonus episodes and recordings, um, including some recordings of actual sessions that we've done because we know how much you guys like to listen in as we actually do therapy. I think we all like that for some reason. Um, so anyway, go to patreon.com slash beyond healing center, and we would love it if you would support us in that way. All right. So today to start with, we're going to do a brief synopsis of what we talked about last time for those of you that may not have listened to that episode yet. And also just to kind of remind us all, because there was a lot and it was all wonderful. So Bridger, if you could just kind of walk us through, uh, real quickly what we talked about last time, and then we'll dive into the rest of what we want to share today. Yeah, and I would definitely recommend going back and listening to that first part just because we talk about a lot of this in depth more. But uh, I think one thing that's really useful to do a, an overview is just the three components of polyvagal theory. It's very simply. So the first uh, component is uh, the autonomic hierarchy. And so this is the ladder of our autonomic service system, uh, autonomic nervous system, sorry. And uh, what the vagal nerve bundle does to animate that and get all of our uh, organs on the same page in terms of responding to an incoming stimulus. So there is the most uh, regulated, and that's the safest or the green zone, uh, ventral vagal. This is the social engagement system. This is where we are hopefully at most of the time. Uh, we exist here. When we're, when we're here, we can uh, invite play. We can connect with others. We can accept love. We can uh, just be kind of in that calm state of uh, things are going well. Um, the next step down the uh, hierarchy is when we perceive something in our environment that has more resources than the ventral vagal state can handle. So this usually is because of a threat of some kind. Now, the degree of threat is going to determine how far down the ladder we have to go, but ultimately the shift away or down from, uh, depending on how you want to look at the model, when you drop down out of ventral vagal, it's going into that sympathetic nervous system response. So that's going to be your flight and your fight response uh, using, you know, kind of the lineage of terminology there. Um, so in that state, then we are uh, out of the ventral vagal. So we're detecting threats. We're looking more critically at our environment. We're not too concerned or even capable of having social engagement at that time because we're not feeling totally safe at this point. Um, there's something in our environment or inside of ourselves that's making us uh, determine that we need more resources uh, 
to give to this. We need to do something about this threat to, to kind of um, remedy whatever is coming our way. Um, so let's say then that in that sympathetic activation, we still don't have the resources available to us. You know, if it's something external to us, a threat in our environment, we don't have the strength or the resources to fight it off or to run from it. Um, and if it's something inside of ourselves, we don't have the resources to understand or to make sense of what uh, is happening psychologically or physiologically. Well, then we go to kind of the dungeon of our nervous system, which is the dorsal vagal shutdown. So this is um, one of the darkest places we can be because it's uh, immobilization with fear. So it's that paralyzed state of I am dissociating, I am away from my body, I can't move, I can't breathe, you know, I, I can't feel things. Um, in terms of the neurophysiology of this entire structure, uh, the vagal nerve bundle is very important to it because it actually, as I said uh, in talking about the autonomic hierarchy, it gets everything on the same page. So when we drop down into the dorsal vagal range, we actually can't hear some of the frequencies that are most common in human voices uh, because of the connection to the striated muscles of the face and the neck. We can't uh, really see very well. It's kind of blurry vision. Um, our body is completely preparing for the worst of the worst to come. So we're listening for those super high or super low frequencies, which is usually what predatorial approaches make. Um, and we're also trying to minimize the impact or the degree of pain we're going to feel. So your body is quite literally shutting down at this point. And this is because of an ancient evolutionary development. You know, we were uh, never meant to come back from a place like that. But where we are currently in our, in our modern age, a lot of people survive uh, going to the dorsal vagal range, you know, and this is usually from a trauma or something like that. So whereas before, if you enter the dorsal vagal range, it's because you are going to die. Now it's usually because your body thinks you're going to die. And the problem then, and what's really relevant for us as therapists, is we are interacting with clients who have been to that place a lot. Yeah. Uh, in, when they've come back from the dorsal vagal kind of wasteland, they have so many scars. And that's the language that we used last in our last session because we're not meant to come back from there. Mm -hmm. Thankfully we do, but that just means we have a lot of work to do. So very briefly, that's the first component um, of the autonomic hierarchy. So the second component is actually what tells us how far down the ladder we need to go. And it's uh, a term coined by Stephen Porges in one of his first articles in the late 90s on polyvagal theory, and it's uh, called neuroception. He, he defines neuroception as a autoconscious experience of stimuli, both internal and external. So autoconscious there just kind of means more, uh, it's close to subconscious, but he wants us to know that it's always going on. Um, so this, another analogy is like it's, it's a sonar, you know, we're just constantly sending out these waves to detect what's in our environment as well as what's going on internally. Um, neuroception then, uh, is also the first kind of part of the river, which we'll talk about later, but neuroception is the kind of what starts all of this process, uh, down, down the line. So neuroception is going to tell us if we have the resources necessary to handle what stimuli is coming in or is being generated internally. 
Um, that being the second component. Then the third component is called co-regulation. So if you have a nervous system that is going up and down, as we all do, the goal is to be in, as, in ventral vagal as much as possible and to avoid dorsal vagal as much as possible. And one thing, again, from Porges is we're wired to connect. Um, you're not meant to handle these, uh, the, the animation of your nervous system alone. In fact, you don't know how to do it healthily without first learning how to co-regulate. Um, co-regulation then being, you know, attachment language helps us understand this a lot because if you have a healthy attachment style, it means that you learn to co-regulate faithfully and predictably. Uh, you had somebody that was there for you in your develop early developmental years that taught you you can express your needs and your needs can be met and it's okay to have that process going. Um, so that's a lot really fast. <laughs> I don't know if you guys want to ask questions there or if you just would rather move on, but um, that's the three components very briefly again. I just want to say, I think for anyone who's taking in all of this information for the first time or has maybe heard it before, this is a great first 10 minutes to go back and replay um, to just get the foundations and understand it. Because I think this is, we have to all understand this level of it first, and then we can start looking at what you're going to get to. How do we integrate this into our practice? What does this mean for our clients? Right. What do those next steps look like? So I think that's a great recap. Right. And I would give, I would just give yourself so much patience and grace in that because yeah. you will get it. And once you start to understand it, it just becomes second nature because this isn't like, oh, this only happens with some people. It's, um, it's, it's always happening with every human being on the planet. Um, so it's a really important piece to your therapy if you're wanting to do, uh, you know, kind of what we're talking about is holistic treatment here. Yeah, absolutely. So if you could go back to that uh, thought that you had about the river and the analogy that kind of yeah. begins to help us have a framework of taking all of this theory and really practically applying it into what we do every day. Yeah. And it's kind of walk us through that analogy a little bit. Right. So it's much easier to do this in person. And so visually or audibly rather, uh, it's kind of difficult to do, but I kind of just want you to imagine you're on a, you're riding down a windy river and this river has multiple turns in it. And these turns are going to represent the, the process of what it looks like to move from neuroception all the way through the experience of the polyvagal system into making sense of what just happened to you. So the river is an analogy to help slow down just into a real-time experience of what it means to be in a ventral vagal state, receive a neuroceptive response that says we need to drop down into some type of response system, so sympathetic or parasympathetic, and we need to then act. Um, so that's what this river is used to do. So I'm going to walk you through it, but I just want you to remind, just to go back to that winding river in your mind as you start. So the place that we start is in neuroception. Remember that auto-conscious uh, level of sonar. So it's constantly sending out that, that uh, wave of uh, stimulus check. And so when we detect something, it moves from our neuroception, that auto-conscious or subconscious, into our perception. So it tells us, hey, there's something going on that we need to pay more attention to. I need part of my prefrontal cortex to start getting involved with this. 
I need to start making sense of what I'm what I'm moving, uh, what's moving towards me, or what I'm experiencing internally, and I need to make a decision. So perception is that first bend on the river. Then from perception, we move into state, which is going to be that autonomic shift down the ladder. If the neuroception sends back, hey, we need to come out of ventral vagal, we need to give more resources to this, we need to focus less on uh, connecting pro-socially with other people, and we need to actually start thinking about survival here for a second, um, that is going to automate uh, our physiological state. Once we then turn on that uh, bend of the river, we're going into feeling. Um, and it's helpful here to distinguish between emotions and feelings. So emotion in this understanding is a physiological somatic experience, whereas feeling is what happens when you give consciousness to that emotion. So as your nervous system is being automated and you move past state, so that shift has already happened, you've passed the vagal break, you're into a place now where you're in your sympathetic nervous system, you are then going to start becoming aware of the feeling that you have with that. And then the next turn, and we've got two more to go, so just kind of keep your mind going. So feeling the next turn is then into behavior. So from that consciousness given to the emotion that was given to you by your state, you're going to then make a behavior. Um, so this is acting on the sympathetic nervous system response or determining that you need to go down into dorsal vagal. So this is that flight or fight response or the immobilization, the freeze response. So if we're able to come out of that, if we survive whatever just happened to us, we move into the final turn of the river, which is story. And this is how we make sense of what just happened to us. So if we're in that flight or fight response, we look at, wow, that really kind of got me shaken up. Um, here's, you know, hopefully we have enough reflective functioning to say, uh, this is what I did to, to get through that. And if we're in that dorsal vagal state, we have a lot harder time doing that. Um, but that's essentially the river. And if you guys would like, we can spend more time on it or we can just go into... Uh... I think real briefly, Bridger, what might be helpful is if you take a, a simple situation that most people would have experienced, something like I'm driving and then I almost get into a car wreck. Yeah. And walk through the points on that yeah, that's experience of, you know, here's the neuroception that's happening and then, you know, kind of move us through that yeah, river yeah, yeah. with that laid over the top because I think that helps us all kind of hook on to the theory yeah. of it. Yeah, concretely. So that's a great example. So let's say you're driving down the highway and uh, an experience that a lot of us have had where we get cut off. Um, that is an excellent example because you're going from a, you know, a, a largely uh, safe state, you know, you're moving down the highway, you're not thinking you're in trouble or anything, maybe you have something on the radio that you're listening to, it's, it's kind of nice. Then all of a sudden, you are experiencing a car come in front of you. If you can slow that down, you're looking at the first half of the river. You're looking at neuroception, perception, state, right there. Because even though you don't know it, your body knew that that car was coming before you were aware that it was coming, right. which is why you're able to you know, jerk the steering wheel or push the brakes and, and make a stop. So right there, we're focusing on neuroception, perception, and state because neuroception detected before you were ever aware of it, that that vehicle was coming into your lane. And from that uh, ping, you know, that's that sonar sent back, hey, there's something coming into uh, what looks like a collision with us, 
we are then becoming aware of that. A car is coming in. The state is activated. You drop down into sympathetic nervous system. So that flight or fight response looks like you either moving away from it or pressing on the brake and maybe honking at the person as well if you're going to do that. Um, and then you're into a space, you know, if, if the car didn't hit you, you're into a space of feeling behavior story. So it happens really, really quick. Um, if the car did hit you, you know, that, that could, you could stay in that sympathetic or even dorsal vagal response longer. But that very simply is the first three steps there. So the I other, think, oh, yeah, go sorry, ahead. go ahead, Bridger. Well, I was just going to say the other three, the feeling behavior story are things uh, that a lot of us don't do very well naturally. We don't take the time to <laughs> notice, oh, the feeling I had about that, the behavior that went along with it, and then the story that I'm telling myself, we're just like, I was almost in a car accident today, you know? Mm -hmm. So it, it's tough. A lot of us don't have this uh, muscle uh, built up in us. But. So by the time we are seeing our clients, yeah. they are... They are in story and not just like newly in story, but most likely they're in like re-rehearsed maladaptive story, like a, an incorrect story of some sort um, that's been rehearsed over and over and potentially had multiple experiences to kind of formulate a story that, they're, that they've created about themselves even. So as we're looking at that and we're thinking we take traditional CBT, we're really focused on those final few steps, right? Like we're, we're talking to clients about how do you shift that emotion or shift that behavior, change those aspects of it. But there's all this other parts of this earlier parts of the river that have created this momentum and kind of um, current moving in a certain direction that push our clients into that repeated emotion, repeated behavior right. symptom that we're trying to change. Right. And I think if you think of the, the river analogy even more, you know, over time that water starts to erode and it's going to make a path that it's going to always take, you know, mm -hmm. there's not going to be a new jet in the river without some serious, you know, work that goes into that. Mm -hmm. So that's another helpful nuance to that analogy that the way that water has run historically is the way it's going to. Yeah. Yeah. So when when you take exactly what you just said and think about the auto, uh, automatic uh, behavioral patterns and relational patterns and addiction patterns that people oh show up with in therapy, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that that begins to and maybe almost completely makes sense of why people are stuck in these things. Yep. And, and why they can't get out. Exactly. And why they end up saying things like, I know that I shouldn't. I know that it hurts me. I don't want to do it. And yet. And this is the problem to me with, with, and I'm just going to be very honest here, in telling you what kind of made me grab onto polyvagal so hard is because this is the problem with motivational interviewing. You know, you get to a place where they understand the cost-benefit analysis of their behavior, but they keep doing it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You could just chalk that up to a biophysiological response and a dependence on whatever that was or you could supplement it also with a you know a, a, a polyvagal informed conceptualization of what they're dealing with right well and what you're describing explains why we have um behavioral addiction 
like gambling, like uh, sex addiction, shopping, food, etc. Like these things that technically science says, well, you can't actually be addicted to these things chemically. And yet it follows all of the addictive patterns that we see in, in any other substance situation. And be, because of the because of the first half of the river, it is a physiological experience for people. That's right. And it's something that is so much bigger than what you're conscious of. Um, I think that's another problem with uh, strictly cognitive um, approaches to therapy. Well, we can see, I've seen, you know, with clients before where they come in, they're doing cognitive or CBT type approach and they they see progress. You know, their symptoms are reduced, they see progress, but they're making all of this, they're working really hard for it. And so at, at some point, you know, they're, they become more relaxed in that or they get tired of working so hard. And I'm thinking of the metaphor of this river. They yeah. can work really hard to change the direction of where That's they're the water, headed down yeah. the river. But eventually the current is so strong that then we see these kind of repetitions of symptoms coming back or maybe they make progress and then the next, you know, simple event happens in their life and triggers it back and they're back in that well, same pattern again. Yeah, and I want to jump in there because I think one thing that um, just sort of illustrates the importance of this understanding is, you know, you look at any of these cognitive treatment plans and it's very uh, situation or symptom focused. And that's great. I am not taking away from that at all. But that can't be the work that you focus on. Like that can't be all that's done for that client because the problem is what if you just change one of the variables? Your entire treatment plan has to change then. Mm -hmm. You have to reconceptualize in a cognitive perspective what now is our presenting issue? What now is the symptom that we're controlling for? You know, it it just, it's whack-a-mole. And I guess going back to that analogy, but yeah. And the EMDR version of whack-a-mole treatment planning is when we focus too much on which oh, negative yeah. cognition, sure, right? Sure. So, so you know, I'm only going to focus on I'm not capable in this situation. I'm all, we're only focused on I'm not good enough. And what ends up happening is that we have to do treatment plan after treatment plan after treatment plan with people because we're not looking at it holistically and right. we're not considering that first half of the river and how much is happening in their body that's feeling all of those things. Right. And so while while at the beginning I think it's harder and maybe slower and takes more patience, in the long run it still saves us time and still saves us work and effort to really conceptualize it from this framework rather than the whack-a-mole version where we're just kind of picking off all of the negative cognitions that we can find. And anybody that comes in with complex PTSD is going to have a list of 19 major negative cognitions. Mm -hmm. And when when I'm looking at that, that just feels overwhelming to both me and the client to imagine having to work through all of those in that way, which is why we don't encourage people to take a negative cognition approach to treatment planning with EMDR. Right. And there, there, there are people that do, you know, and, and I think that there are people that have a, a bend in their approach towards some of those, those symptom focused and those negative cognitions. But what we're talking about here is, you know, when that doesn't work or when it does kind of fall apart for that person, what's really going on there? That to me is what polyvagal theory explains. Melissa, kind of adding to what you're saying, when we're targeting present experience or recent experience as they're coming in each week, 
it's a similar thing of whack-a-mole of, you know, there's this new trigger or this new thing that came up throughout the week. And so let's target that. And a lot of times in consultation, I'll have therapists share about that where it just feels like I don't, we are not gaining any ground. We're just kind of chasing what's going on here. I do think there's value to doing that as a preparation or a stabilization tool and technique similar to like CBT, motivational interviewing. There is worth and value in that in its right place. But if we're looking at full treatment and clients not having to constantly be resisting symptoms and working so hard, we need to be starting back at the very beginning of the river and looking at what was going on there and what are the kind of shifts and changes we make there rather than how are we catching them by the time. Absolutely. And I think the EMDR framework has this naturally built into it. I mean, just think of one of the perfect analogous uh, modalities, which is the float back. What are you doing there? You're you're letting the client experience, you know, uh, very, very specific uh, historical experiences of what they're focusing on in treatment. Yeah, well, and if we just take like the float back and apply this theory over top of it, what's happening is that we're using something in the present moment to activate their nervous system. Once the nervous system is activated, they can tune in to the feeling and then to the state, which then leads us back to the pattern, and we find the pattern in the form of memory, and that's where we target it. We literally float back up the river. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love it. (laughs) Well done, Bridger. That was good. Thank you. I'll be here all week. That's it. We should start talking about that in our trainings, Jen. Like, yeah. we need to flip back. We're flipping back, back up the river. Yes, no, yeah. I like it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think I think that that is part of the power of this theory combined with EMDR is that EMDR naturally starts to include the um, the understanding of when we activate the nervous system, it is giving us information all the time about the roots of where the real problem is so that we can target it. Mm-hmm. And I think it bears saying at this point that we don't have to 100% understand how it got built in the first place. That's right? very important. Sometimes we get into zones with clients where this was pre-verbal trauma. Yes. This is generational trauma. This is big cultural trauma that maybe it didn't even happen to us, but it's just the water we're swimming in all the time and our nervous system is reacting to that stuff. Right, right. But we don't know how to turn that into story, right? We don't right. have that story, but we still have all of it stored into our nervous system. And EMDR lets us do that, but we have to kind of be comfortable with the with an amorphous understanding yes, yes. and then make the story after. Yeah. And see, this is one, one distinction I want to make because... I think there's a misconceptualization in uh, both attachment and trauma treatment literature that talks about uh, the importance of developing a coherent narrative. Right. Um, the client doesn't know that their narrative is incoherent. Mm-hmm. They believe and are functioning as a direct result of the coherent narrative that they have. We see it as incoherent. So that's the problem is because when you come in as a therapist and you smash that incoherent narrative and say, like, we need to put this back together, you just took away the client's understanding and justification, support, the the link that got them to where they are. That's the problem. You have to, and this goes back to what I said in the first episode of, of seeing everything as adaptive. They told themselves the story that they needed to hear to survive. That is what you need to start on. Because that story, in order for it to change, it has to be acknowledged, 
given, you know, a, a thankfulness to of thank you for being there for me when I needed you. But I need you to also see that the story that you're telling yourself is actually perpetuating the maladaptive uh, system that you're in right now. So, Bridger, can you talk a little bit, and I think both Jen and I probably have some examples that we can and should share as well, of how to take that tool of story and make it work in this framework, right? Because, uh, you know, I think one of the challenges here is, well, okay, we, we know now that we need to start addressing those earlier things in the river, but how do we do that practically? Like we're sitting in session, how do we utilize narrative and story and words and language and all the stuff that we have at our disposal yeah. actually access that? And I think EMDR does that. It, it really, really, you know, is a perfect marriage. But I just want to hear you talk a little bit about practically how do we do that? And then both Jen and I can share examples as well. Right. And I think to me, just coming from uh counselor education standpoint, it, it, it is difficult to detach orientation, you know, your theoretical orientation from how you do this in the room with someone. Because polyvagal theory isn't just for EMDR. It's not just for attachment. You know, this, this theory can be implemented and integrated into many different theoretical orientations, and there's a lot of research on that. Um, so just from my perspective, there's... Um, Deb Dana is a great place to start for that because she has done so much of the legwork in talking about how to integrate this into your practice. You can become a fully polyvagal informed therapist, or you can just, you know, use it as insight tools or psychoeducation or whatever you'd like to say uh, for your work with your clients. Um, the story is what kind of Jen, back to what you said, the story is what you're encountering in the person when they first come to therapy you're getting their understanding of the story of what's in your presenting issue, why are you here, what do you hope to get out of therapy, that kind of thing, you're interacting with story right away. Um, the purpose, I think, then, from moving to a polyvagal-informed approach is to understand the shaping of that story. I think that's, that's one of the first steps. So um, Deb Dana proposes a model in her work, which we can talk about, and then we can kind of move into integration if that works with you guys. Yeah. Okay. So uh, Deb Dana talks about uh, BASIC model. That's what she called it. And that's an acronym for befriend, attend, shape, integrate, and connect. So this is from a fully polyvagal informed conceptualization of your clients and the work that you're doing with them. Befriend being... Uh, becoming aware of the three components of polyvagal theory, so the autonomic hierarchy, neuroception, and co-regulation. Attending, then being uh, becoming aware of your uh, vagal breaks, where they are, what situations you know make you go into sympathetic, into dorsal vagal experiences of ventral vagals, that social connectedness. And then shape, which is actually becoming aware and conscious of your ability to reshape and to uh, start doing the work, which is a lot of what therapy is doing, and then integrating that understanding and connecting. So uh, from that perspective, the basic model essentially seeks to uh, instill a polyvagal-informed understanding of a client's worldview, so how they're experiencing their world in moment-to-moment -moment interactions and what control they have over that, essentially. Well, so 
you know, as I was thinking about examples of how this actually can happen in therapy, I kept thinking about utilization of body-focused modalities. Yes. And at least for me, there were, you know, I think this was about a year and a half ago, a couple of years ago, that I started feeling this huge impulse to involve the body more. And that came out of, you know, doing EMDR and watching how this plays out for people. And there's sort of this point where you start to feel like we've gone as far as we can. And until we start to really, really involve the nervous system and the body, we're not going to go much farther. It's kind of this natural stopping point for people. Um, And we have a lot of body-based interweaves, and we've talked about that before. And I think those are hugely helpful just to have people notice the sensation that's going on. Um, but what I was running into is what if they can't connect with that, right? Like what, what if there is such a rupture in their system or what if they're dropping down into that dorsal vagal response so often, um, that I, we, the therapist have to be involved in that co-regulation otherwise we're not going to get anywhere. And so suddenly I felt this great urge to like have tools that would help me do this. And, you know, I, I think there's many, many different ways of going about this for me. I actually like got trained in body-based modalities that wouldn't let me do this. And I know this sounds crazy, but I'm a therapist that touches people. Ah, (laughs) but I'm fully trained and I'm allowed to do it. I got permission. Um, And I, I have, you know, seen amazing, like absolutely amazing results when we start to incorporate that piece of it because it, it lets us bypass so much and allows the nervous system to do what the nervous system does without the interference of the cognitive brain slowing down that process. The polyvagal system fully explains what you're talking about because the prefrontal cortex, what so many therapists deal with, and for good reason, I mean, there's a lot of comfort and aid given to clients and helping them restructure their thoughts, reframe, and that type of thing. But the problem is the prefrontal cortex is not what animates the nervous system. Right. The prefrontal cortex is recruited if necessary. Usually, the nervous system actually says, "Stay out of this." Right. You take too long. Oh. Yeah, exactly. You take too long <laughs> yeah. to do what I need you to do. I'm going to go with my mammalian brain, the back, you know, the brainstem, yep. and I'm, yeah, and I'm going to uh, do stuff real quick to keep us alive. Mm-hmm. Um, and then yeah. the cognitive brain makes the story yes. without having ever been involved in that whole process. Right. Hopefully, yeah. it can. Right. Yes. Sometimes the, 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 the details are kept from the cognitive brain. I would say they're usually kept from it. Like yeah. they're, they're, it's, it's like um, if you weren't actually there, but you're trying to tell the story of somebody else's event. Right. Like we can get kind of close, but there there's so much experiential material that gets missed. That's right. And I, think, I think that happens for clients a lot. That's and right. so part of the, the body-based interweaves and the body-based work is to helping them reconnect with the actual nervous system experience that's right. so that that can be shifted. And that's right. when we get those really you know amazing kind of spontaneous changes in their nervous system right. um, so that they don't have to keep utilizing their energy for symptom management. Well, that's, that's where so we important. see clients as they're filling in those gaps because it, it's too dysregulating to have a story that we've lived through and not be able to understand it or share it. As they yeah. fill in those gaps, they don't necessarily plug it in with the most adaptive, healthy information right. yes. unless they're right. a highly well-adjusted individual. But right. when we're looking at complex trauma, they're filling it in with what the world has told them about right. themselves or about the safety of the world in general. And right. they're creating this narrative from that information. 
and so that we get stories that um, are very maladaptive or um, are very harmful to the client. Well, let's, let's use another analogy here or another uh, case example rather of, you know, we've been talking about physical trauma a little bit here with your, you know, the car accident metaphor and, and things like that. But what about a dysfunctional relationship pattern, right? Mm-hmm. Polyvagal theory explains this so well. Um, you know, for whatever reason that you got into this dysfunctional pattern in relationships of, you know, being used and not having uh, high satisfaction in your relationships or even using other people, um, the polyvagal system is going to help explain this better than most uh, uh, theories of therapy. So basically what it's looking at there is that that response in, you know, your codependency or whatever it might have been was shaped in your nervous system. Um, and that's the link between attachment and uh, polyvagal theory. But this has so much relevance for that, too, because, you know, you ask someone, why would you get into that relationship again? Why would you keep going back to him? Why would you, you know, fill in the blank of whatever question uh, is typically there in people? They answer the same way. I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I know that it's unhealthy. I know that he treats me badly or that she is controlling or whatever but I can't stop. I'm thinking about so many people that have these kinds of patterns and how much information you get when you think about those unhealthy relationship dynamics being an attempt at co-regulation that just totally misfires, right? Like they're, they're recreating that pattern of I'm attempting to connect with my primary caretaker because I'm supposed to co-regulate with them because I'm not okay. But for whatever reason that doesn't go well, but this is still the place I'm supposed to, go and they just carry that forward into the rest One of their life. One thing I say with clients a lot is that our brain is developed enough to give us the illusion of present consciousness. Um, it, it, it is letting us believe that we are in the present moment experiencing relationships as we are, but really we're trying to solve problems that we've been working on for a really long time. Mm-hmm. Um, that is what I'm communicating basically in what you just said, Melissa, of you know, you're trying to essentially offer up the wounds that you've experienced all of your life and say, do you have the answer for this? Yes. You know, do, can you Are you my mother? <laughs> you know, that Freudian analysis there. I was thinking about the children's book, not Freud. But that's essentially what we're doing, you know, uh, like, do you have the resources to help me with this problem or not? Yes. You know, that's a subconscious experience for a lot of us, but that can help turn a lot of lights on for people that are in chronic, pervasive, dysfunctional relationship patterns. Right. And it so beautifully answers that, you know, shame inducing question of why do I do what I don't want to do? Exactly. Right. You know, I don't want to be hurting myself in this way. I don't want to be hurting the people I love in this way. And yet, because the, the compulsion of the nervous system to recreate these patterns is so strong. It's so strong, and that's because it, it, it it's trying to recreate the initial wounding, the, the atmosphere that that happened in. It's trying to recreate that so it can solve the problem. Right. You know, I'm kind of riffing off of the theory right now, but that's what I see in my clients as I'm working with them. Absolutely. Yeah. Is we're doing our best to set up the exact scenario that we felt got us off track. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when, yeah, you're, when we're you're... going back to the rupture point. When we're doing EMDR, then basically what we're doing is in a safe, 
environment with someone to co-regulate with them in a very you know like regulated nervous system and helping guide them in that we're taking them back up the river we're floating them back up the river and letting them re recreate or re-experience that story and store it differently um, rather than the way it was stored before well the emdr i mean framework does this naturally i just Mm -hmm. keep going back to that of you know we talk about what is the negative cognition? Then what is the positive cognition that you would like to believe about yourself and now? Body. Yes, exactly. We lock it in. That's yeah. the crazy part to me of like, I don't know, this is collective consciousness right here. You know, like they're, they're developing, they were on the same wavelength and developing because that's essentially what's happening neurophysiologically with your nervous system. It needs to go back there and experience what went wrong and how adaptive it was in the moment but how that is now leading us to maladaptive habitual you know dysfunction yeah and it can't just go back there from the prefrontal cortex like it can't just go from a thinking place or a how do i rewrite my story to what i wish it could be it really has to go back there while we're accessing the back of their brain and what is the experience yeah what is the experience of um you know, I don't know if you guys have had this experience, but you know when you're interacting with the prefrontal cortex and rewriting someone's story because Absolutely. they're talking and it's just like you don't actually believe that. Yeah, right. Yeah. Like, or it, it's not. Yeah, it's not real, is it? And they're like, no, I don't believe that. Also, you can feel when when things shift in the session, and now you're interacting with their nervous system, absolutely right, and their body. And our skills as a therapist are essential to to gently and safely activate their nervous system in that way, so that we we unlock this other side of things. And I really think that our ability to do that as a therapist, um, with our presence, with our voice, with our body, everything is essential because. They, they weren't able to have that co-regulating experience then, and we're part of that now. Yeah, and that's, I think, um, one of my favorite things that came out of our first uh, episode was um, uh, the therapist's over-dependence on their mind as their number one instrument, where it's actually their body. It is. I totally agree with that. Mm-hmm. Now, that's, that's not just saying you need to throw away your cognitive manuals and work from a body-based perspective or a somatic psychology perspective. That's saying... Yeah, Bridger, I'm okay with that. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've uh, upset a lot of people. I know. <laughs> but I think, I, I think in that, what it's saying is, that's great. Use those all day long. Just know that the point of that has to be a reshaping of their nervous system mm-hmm. or oh, just whack them Yes, yes. yes. So this is a slight caveat, but not really. When when you talk about all of that, it explains why when we're training people in EMDR, we always say you are not equipped to do EMDR with people with dissociative disorders without additional training. And because what we're actually saying, and didn't know it, is until you know how to be in dorsal vagal response with someone and co-regulate them in that space, and bring them back from that space, you can't do what you need to do. You have to have that other set of skills to enter into that space with them confidently and calmly and call them back out of that. And until you can do that, we shouldn't be doing this work with people with high dissociation. I can't, language falls apart for me when I try to describe a dorsal vagal experience to someone. Um, Yeah. It is the darkest place on earth. It's true. 
it is a place that we were never meant to exist in. We weren't built for that. And that's why Stephen Porges talks about it's impossible for someone to come out of a dorsal vagal system without a co-regulative person. He's, it's, it's, it's plain to him. It's just it's not possible. And if you do, that's going to inhibit socialization. Right. You're going to say, I came out of this myself, therefore no one is safe. That is the power, and that is, is you're exactly right. If you're if you're experiencing a, a pattern in your clients of heavy dissociation, this is where the nervous system is. It, it's almost reordering the ladder to. I'm not going to drop down into sympathetic. I'm going to go straight down to the bottom. Yes. I'm going straight down into dorsal vagal shutdown because I cannot handle it, and I don't have any interest in reshaping this thing. Right. Yeah. And I I think and this is just me speaking to therapists that also have an extensive trauma history. For those of you that are like really resonating with this and saying, Oh yeah, I totally know what that feels like. You are especially equipped to go there with people. Yes. yes as yeah. long as you have experienced and what it means. Yeah. And done your work to, to have a co-regulatory experience and you need to know how to hold that in your body, yeah. not just the information in your mind, but safely exist in that space with someone else. And for those of us, I mean, because that's me, like my body goes to dorsal vagal. It's, heavily patterned in my system and so I'm familiar with that and for a long time it worried me until I figured out oh I can do this safely in ways that I it feels very spontaneous and natural to me because I've spent so much time there myself I'm not afraid of it anymore I know I know what to do I know what's going on and one of the hardest things when somebody is in that space is they cannot and will not be able to articulate to you what they're feeling that's right. There are no words for what's happening in their body. And so if you have felt it in your own body, you can actually start wrapping words around their experience. And that is part of what pulls them out of that sensation. And it is such a gift. So if that's you, don't be discouraged and feel like, you know, you can't do it because this is your story. I actually think that it prepares you to do it better. So this is one thing I just want to spend a, mi a minute here to talk about, uh, some of our more clinically extreme examples of dissociative disorders because the polyvagal theory um at least in my understanding of working with these clients who you know are the did or just heavily dissociative they they just exist in a dissociated state their nervous system is so so broken in that way and to meet them in therapy isn't to you know over pathologize their experience of dissociating but to say why is that your mo why is that your gut response and to your dissociative identity disorder clients these clients are so good at it yes and they're so prone to it that that you have to know that walking into therapy with these clients their polyvagal system says dissociation is my normal right I have to exist in dorsal vagal. Right. That's what you're working with. And I would say, at least from my experience, the first phase of doing this kind of work with someone with, with true DID is that we choose to walk into dorsal vagal response with them and we take the story to them. Yeah. Right. We, we walk in there with our words, with our prefrontal cortex, but 
only as a backup plan. We first have to show up with our body and with our presence so that every aspect of them in there is going to feel safe enough to hear what we're bringing to the table and safe enough to hear each other in that space as well and not to continue to fracture, right? So when we're walking into a fractured soul, we have to have a plan for how we're going to stay regulated ourselves. Mm -hmm. Um, And to me, story has a lot to do with that, but we have to be careful with how we're, and that's a whole separate episode. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fall down that rabbit hole because I could talk about that for a long time. Yeah, well, and my fascination with personality disorders is very similar in that way because if you're using DID as the extreme on that side of the spectrum of dissociation, all of these personality disorders and the dysfunctional relationship patterns that they so frequently fall into, Mm -hmm. it's because of their polyvagal system. Right. Right. They're predisposed to these patterns. And if you start talking to a histrionic or a borderline patient about how incongruent or, you know, illogical their swings are and what effects those have on other people, that's going to fall flat on its face if you don't have a polyvagal informed understanding of their nervous system. It just is. And that's why people hate working with borderlines and and histrionics because they're talking to their prefrontal cortex, which actually has no business (laughs) being ever... Bridger, like, that's a really good point. If you have those kind of clients, and it's also true with DID clients or if you work with children, if you have uh, kids with RAD, reactive attachment, you it would be uh, helpful to just imagine that when they walk in the room, they're just walking in as a raw nervous system. They're just a little bundle of nerves and there's not much else. Yep. And so you work with that nervous system first and almost only for quite a while before the rest of them is online enough to really do real work with story. That's right. Because think about with a, sorry, Jen, did you have something? I was just going to say, as I'm hearing you guys share this, these lists of clients are going through my mind that I don't even want to say they are borderline personality, but maybe they, they meet some of those traits right. in different ways. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and they're the clients who the office itself is such a significant place in their world. And myself as a therapist is a significant person in their world. The hug that I give them at the end of the session is so critical. And as you're sharing all this, it's that co-regulation piece that their systems are craving and desiring so much. And that as a therapist, if you're not seeing it as that, you can formulate it and, oh, this is part of the manipulation or this is part of like, they're draining me and they're depending on me too much. And we give all of these things and want to push against that when we can really embrace it in a healthy way as we're looking at it as how do we help support them regulating their nervous system and be a part of that co-regulation. I actually make it explicit, right? Because, you know, one of the things that, you know, we do at at our center is we do these healing intensives where we use all these body-based modalities. And part of the psychoeducation that we give clients is this is why we do that. Mm-hmm. We are teaching your nervous system. Yeah. Right? We, we are working with the rest of you, not just the front of your brain, to learn what it means to feel safe, to feel calm, to feel emotionally held by by practitioners that are trained to do this. And, and nine times out of ten, when people are reflecting on their experience in those retreats, they expect the EMDR to be meaningful to them, and it always is, but it's those body-based interventions that just kind of blows their mind. Yeah. They're like, I can't right. believe that that made the, the amount of impact that it did. That's right. And I have clients that I think if they were to choose me versus their therapeutic massage therapist that we would <laughs> choose her. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. Because they, they, they really, they feel they begin to sense how much their nervous
nervous system is craving that regulation and we give them that language yeah. and I think when we start to give them that understanding of how to care for their nervous system as the biological system that it is it's yes. very empowering to them yes and I think you know bridging that into my fascination with the attachment literature this is it, this is spot on with what we're talking about right now and this is why with those personality disorders or really anybody that's having uh, trouble in relationships it's a it's a neurobiological experience of your your nervous system is predisposed towards insecure attachment. Right. That is a podcast in and of itself right there. Like a whole podcast should exist on that because it's it, it just helps, I don't know, it just helps re I don't know, reemphasize the the empathy and the understanding and the adaptive nature of what they were going through and what they're experiencing and what they're looking for now. You want to talk about the, the polarizing swings of a borderline patient? Look at their nervous system yeah. and what it's doing. It yeah. is swinging back and forth between sympathetic, parasympathetic, sympathetic, parasympathetic in real time where most people, they just can't handle it. Mm-hmm. Right. Their polyvagal system is on the fritz to say the way it's like yeah. it is. It, it is just and and just we as therapists get dysregulated ourselves Absolutely. by the intensity. How could you not? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Oh, yeah, we have to talk about that more. That's very interesting. Well, I would love to hear from our listeners if you guys would like additional episodes on these things that we're talking about. Um, I feel like, Bridger, I know you proposed a five-episode series about it, and <laughs> we've, we've completed two, and I feel like we're, we're wrapping up here with this. We could have more discussion on this and this and this, so... All you listeners out there, please write in, send us messages on Instagram, Facebook, email, our website. Let us know um, what you want to hear more on on this topic. Like if you want us to focus in on a certain area and we'd be happy to try to deliver that content. Do you guys have any kind of final wrap up words before we close today? I have uh, just a couple resources to yeah. give therapists. So Deb Dana, D-E-B. D-A-N-A is sort of a one-stop shop for polyvagal informed therapy. She's done work directly with uh, Stephen Porges um, and uh, just has a breadth of resources available. So she has stuff available on Amazon um, and uh, her own website as well. So Very practical stuff. She has like oh charts God. that describe all of this that you can use in session to make it yeah. for your clients. It's very helpful. Her latest work is uh, uh, published in 2020 called Polyvagal Exercises for Safety and Connection, and it's 50 uh, client-centered exercises included in it. The first three chapters, or four chapters, I think, are just an overview of the polyvagal uh, theory, and then it jumps right into exercise after exercise after exercise along her basic model. Yeah. Okay, great. Thank you for sharing those. And Bridger, thank you so much again for being on here We want to encourage everyone to listen in more um, for more information on our new podcast that's going to be focused for clients, and Bridger's going to be a regular voice and presence on that, and I feel certain you'll hear more from him here on Notice That as well. Yes, if there's a microphone around, it's it's just going to happen. (laughs) (laughs) I do want to share one additional resource with you guys. You've heard us talk about her before. Katherine Keller, um, we've been working alongside her for quite some time now. She is offering a free class um, just to kind of look at how to market and manage your private practice in these difficult times right now with COVID-19, how to overcome some of the stressors and challenges that have come with all of our shifts 
related to that. So we just want to encourage um, you to check her out more. Check out this free class. Um, free is the key word there. She is very experienced, has a ton of wisdom and knowledge in marketing and business management. So if you can get any free resources from her, I would absolutely recommend them. You'll find her at www.katherinekeller.net backslash EMDR. That's www.k-a-t-h-e-r-i-n-e-k-e-l-l-e-r.net slash E-M-D-R. So please check her out, um, get some more information from her on marketing strategies and just managing your business during this hard time. Thank you guys for tuning in. We look forward to our next episodes and hearing back from you guys on what you want more of. Take care and we'll talk again soon. Thanks for listening to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. We hope something you've heard today will help you help your clients. Find our latest episode and more on our Facebook page or on our website, emdr-podcast.com. And don't forget to add us to your RSS feed or follow us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher so that you don't miss an episode. Please email questions and comments to notice that at emdr-podcast.com. From all of us here at Notice That, see you next time.